0: All of you on the moon. moon. On at one small step man, for man. One giant leap for man.
1: and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode (coughs) 618 for the week of Monday, November 3rd, 2014. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is the usual cast of characters, Gene McCulka and Mark Ratterman, as well as once again our special guests, Kat Robinson and Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Welcome everybody. To begin, we thought it was a bad week already for private spaceflight. Well, Later in the week, unfortunately, it got worse. On this past Friday, which that was Halloween, the 31st of October, 2014, Virgin Galactic conducted another test on Spaceship Two, which is their space plane designed to carry tourists up into space for a few minutes for, you know, a cost of about $250,000. They were doing another one of their test flights, and about six seconds after it was dropped from its carrier aircraft, White Knight Two, there was a little bit of a problem The aircraft broke up into pieces and crashed into the Mojave Desert in California. One of the pilots, Peter Siebold, survived. The other, co-pilot Michael Alsberry, unfortunately did not. Now, there's a lot of speculation. There was some rumors about a new fuel that was used that they thought might have brought it down. Um, But let's not speculate. Let's talk about what we know so far about this. Gene?
0: Thanks, Sawyer. The NTSB, or the National Transportation Safety Board, has been conducting an exhaustive investigation. That investigation will probably last quite some time. They sifted through the debris that is what is left of the Virgin Spaceship Enterprise. I believe they indicated that it went about maybe in a footprint of about five miles long. Most of the debris has been collected and has been brought to another area. First, it's been cataloged and so on, photographs taken of where it was. I would imagine a footprint of where the debris was found is is being created and so on. But some of that debris has been moved to a holding area and is, is undergoing further examination, according to Christopher Hart of the NTSB. However, Sawyer, another revelation was made yesterday evening concerning this whole event, and I'm going to let Christopher Hart explain the whole situation and what was discovered.
2: One of the things we found today was on our, we found based on video data and telemetry, and I would like to explain that to you, but before I do that, I would like to emphasize that what I'm about to say is a statement of fact and not a statement of cause. We are a long way from finding cause. We still have months and months of investigation to do, a lot that we don't know. We have extensive data sources to go through. In order to explain what I'm about to say, I want to explain the concept of feathering. This is the space vehicle in normal flight and these two tail booms that extend back are referred to as feathers. After the space vehicle is launched, and goes up to the apogee, then when it starts to return to the atmosphere, the procedure is to move the feathers into a position where the entire body rotates in order to create more drag as the space vehicle is re-entering the atmosphere. The spaceship was released normally, and after it was released, shortly after it was released. The rocket engine ignited. About nine seconds after the engine ignited, the telemetry data told us, showed us that the feather parameters changed from lock to unlock. Now, in order for feathering this action to be commanded by the pilots, two actions must occur. One is the lock unlock handle must be moved from lock to unlock, and number two is the feathering handle must be moved to the feather position. Approximately two seconds after the feathering parameters indicated that the lock-unlock lever was moved from lock to unlock, the feathers moved toward the extended position, the deployed position, even though the feather handle itself had not been moved. And this occurred at a speed just above approximately Mach 1.0. Shortly after the feathering occurred, the telemetry data terminated and the video data terminated. The engine burn was normal up until the extension of the feathers. There is a camera in the cockpit, there are several cameras in the, in the space vehicle, there is a camera in the cockpit mounted on the ceiling that looks forward and shows the actions of the pilots and the instruments and review of that camera is consistent with the telemetry data and shows that the feather lock unlock lever was moved by the co-pilot from the lock position to the unlock position. Normal launch procedures are that after the the release, the ignition of the rocket and acceleration, that the the, the feathering devices are not to be moved the unlock, the lock unlock lever is not to be moved into the unlock position until the acceleration up to Mach 1.4. Instead, as I indicated, that occurred approximately Mach 1.0. So again, I want to emphasize that we have not determined the cause. I'm not stating that this is the cause of this mishap. We have months and months of investigation to determine what the cause was. We'll be looking at Training issues, we'll be looking at was there pressure to continue testing. We'll be looking at safety culture. We'll be looking at the design, the procedure. We've got many, many issues to look into much more extensively before we can determine the cause. So I emphasize once again what I just told you was not a statement of cause, but rather a statement of fact. There's much more that we don't know, and our investigation is far from over.
0: So again, he stated that this was simply a statement of fact. So this was an observation they noticed corroborating telemetry and corroborating video data, and it is not the root cause. I know it's been reported in a couple areas that this may be you know, a contributing factor in all this, and it might be. We don't know yet. As Mr. Hart said, there are several things still going on. This investigation is still happening. There are things that they need to look at further as far as training and and a few other elements and so on that they need to examine. So this whole thing is far from over. But this is just one data point that they are getting. The interesting thing, Sawyer, I'll point out, because you had mentioned over the weekend several theories. One, the fuel mixture. Two, there was a scathing indictment, I believe, from someone out there. I believe one of the writers for Space Safety Magazine had offered a really, really scathing rebuke of the fuel mixture and of the engines and saying that she had warned Virgin Galactic about all of this. And, I mean, it, it was just, oh, wow. I mean, you want to talk about scathing. But the interesting thing was they picked up the engine. They weren't touched. No burn marks, no burn through. Ditto the fuel tanks. No burn through. So so much for the fuel mixture and so much for an engine failure. So I think that should put all of that nonsense to bed for the time being. I'm sure they still have to pick out the engines. They'll still be picking apart the primary engine and making sure that there was absolutely no failure in it. The fuel tank, you know, they said there was no burn through, no nothing there. So again, no failure there. So I don't want to say those things are off the hook. But it's looking less and less likely that it was the engine of the fuel tank, as it was supposedly speculated over the weekend. And it's just an example too of where speculation can can get you. Mark you and I had a conversation about that earlier. Speculation gets you nowhere. So let's just follow the data, see where it takes us, and learn from what occurred. But let's not forget either that it was a sad day on Friday. We we lost uh, a talented pilot at the age of 39, and another is, was, is now fighting for his life. So keep those two families and those two men in your thoughts.
1: Yeah, it really is a, it's a sad event. I know the big thing with Antares is, is that thankfully there was no loss of life. It was just lost a vehicle, and we were mourning science packages. It's a lot worse this time when there's actually people involved. But, you know, this is a test flight. I hate to bring it up, especially after mentioning the crew, which there's actually now a fund for the pilot's family that was created. But again, it is a test flight. Thankfully, there was only two people on board. It wasn't a worse tragedy, but it still is terrible for a test flight to go that wrong. But a lot of people now are saying because of this, that this is going to be the end of Virgin Galactic, and people aren't going to want to fly anymore, and that is the, why are we still doing all this private space, so. This comes up every time, I I don't want to sound icy
3: or anything, but every time there is a loss of life to do with space, you get people saying, should we do this anymore? This does, never happens when there's a car accident. We don't say, should we keep driving? But car accidents kill astounding amounts of people, right? We don't say this when somebody dies playing football. We don't say, let's cancel the sport of football. We don't. We just don't. But spaceflight, which is the grandest endeavor that human beings have ever taken on, the riskiest, the thing we can learn more from, these, this thing that matters so much to the future of our entire species somehow is the thing we should quit when somebody dies. And I'd love to find the root of why specifically this seems so not worth the risk of life when football somehow escapes such criticism.
4: It's absolutely, Kathy. That's an interesting question, why we care so much about a single loss of life or a very small percentage loss of life in space travel when other activities cause much more deaths or much more injury, even than space travel. And, you know, we knew this was coming. Last week when we were talking about Antares, you know, I was talking about the statement that Administrator Bolden said, and he's like, you know, this is a risky business. We will lose life in it. It's a question of how we move on after we lose life.
0: That's essentially, too, what uh, folks over at Orbital Sciences said after the loss of Antares, that... Uh, you know, this is a risky business and how you bounce back from an event like this will will basically be your, your measure. There was a, an interesting little article in Bloomberg magazine on the Bloomberg website, I'm sorry, over the weekend. And I believe the statistic was if they, they ran the numbers, which I thought was fascinating. And they said that, um, If you apply the same odds to commercial aviation as you would to spaceflight, we would lose about 272 aircraft per day in comparison. So I'm not too sure that's even a good way of comparing spaceflight to commercial aviation. But because there really isn't a comparison, it's a heck of a lot tougher of an endeavor.
3: Well, and commercial aviation is one of the safest ways to travel on this planet as well. Yeah it's a lot safer than, you know, walking around in a city or <laughs> driving in a car. So it really isn't a fair comparison because absolutely. it is
4: incredibly safe. <laughs> well, absolutely, too. It's very difficult to take a comparison with spaceflight and any other thing to say, look at how many people are lost. Although, you know, we were just talking about that, just because there is not the number of space launches in order to extrapolate out numbers.
0: Mark, you had something you wanted to add. Go ahead. Oh, I like all the
5: favorable words about the safety of aviation, and it's all true. Every now and then I see the statistics that show different modes of transportation, air, automobile, the trucking industry, uh, the marine transportation, marine shipping, uh, railroad, pedestrians, Bicycles and you look at the risk of fatality and in all those modes and they are all higher and with aviation being commercial aviation being the safest and there is certainly nothing any easier about space than aviation Uh, and I probably didn't say that right but aviation makes how can I put this We're, we're so used to the safety of commercial aviation that we think spaceflight should be the same. And it's not there (laughs) yet. It isn't. Give it time.
3: Point, Mark. And, you know, if you look at the early days of aviation and you look at the speed from which it went from being just the daredevils to... Now, America took a long time to have commercial aviation, but in Europe they had it quite quickly. And if you look at it, the, the timeline is on track for... You know, I mean, there was there were a lot of accidents early on in aviation. It was a very dangerous thing at first. It got safer and safer and is so safe today. It takes time to make it safe and it takes accidents to learn how to do that.
0: Hey, guys, are we becoming too risk adverse?
3: Yes, absolutely. In general, in every way. Look at how we raise children now. We have become extremely risk averse, especially in America, because we're a very litigious nation. In other places, nobody would ever consider things like suing for the things that we sue over. It's, it's thing,
4: part of our culture. One thing that we also need to remember when we talk about safety of spaceflight is that we do need to remember that this was a test flight, which is a lot different than looking at a regular scheduled launch. This is, you know, a test flight. This is what pilots who are test pilots, know that they're facing every time they get into an aircraft or spacecraft that is not yet fully tested.
5: Something I've thought a lot about with these both accidents that we're going to be talking about is the role of the NTSB in the investigation. And I just took a look at the page for Christopher Hart, the acting chairman of the NTSB, and his credentials are extremely impressive. And here and there over the years, I've read some both preliminary and final accident reports on aviation accidents. And the detail that that the NTSB goes into is absolutely incredible. If you're just talking about two small planes that have a you know, a mid-air collision or a near-mid-air collision, and they have a uh, damage to an aircraft or, you know, heaven forbid, loss of life or injuries, they go into such incredible detail. And the specialists that are part of that investigation, let me just rattle off a few of the areas that they cover. Uh, a GO team may have these members, and I forget the exact number of individuals that are participating with the investigation on Spaceship Two But they basically said we have a we have a large team because we don't want to miss anything. We don't want to make any mistakes, but an NTSB can have somebody that their specialization, that person's focus is operations, which is uh, crew members duties prior to flight uh, during flight structures the design of the aircraft, spacecraft in this case, power plants. In the case of aviation, they go into breakdown of engines, they take them apart, they look at scoring, they look at marks in the engine and determine whether it was something that happened in flight, under power, or during the actual impact with the ground. They look at systems. They can have specialists for air traffic control, which that isn't the case in this accident, weather, human performance, and, and other areas. And the point I wanna make is that the NTSB is extremely thorough. And one of the things that probably surprises you, or may surprise you, they make safety recommendations on the completion of their investigation They make recommendations and they may address a a specific issue or a variety of issues, but they're recommendations. And I remember over the years, uh, commercial aviation accidents where, you know, you heard about what the cause was and exactly what happened. And you think, how could the FAA not require certain things to be done? And there you've got the dynamic of the FAA being a, a regulatory agency, and at right. the same time, they're an agency that is there to promote aviation. So they have kind of wearing two different hats that are somewhat in conflict. And, of course, the airlines, their interest is in the dollars and cents of the operation. Well, if we, we have to make certain changes, it's going to cost us money. It's going to affect our cost per passenger mile, et cetera, et cetera. So it all becomes very complicated, and I don't think that this dawning age of commercial space flight and people being able to go as passengers in the future is going to be any less complex or any less influenced by different pressures. But if anybody is is interested, I would definitely poke around the ntsb.gov website. Don't go to the news necessarily. If you really want to dig into some of this, you can read the accident reports of, I'll mention one that probably uh, people will recognize in the U.S., the crash of a Asiana Airlines Flight 214 where they went below their descent path and hit a seawall, I believe it was at San Francisco. The accident was back in July of 2013. The report was dated at the end of June of 2014. So just shy of 12 months later, their final report. So these things take time. But if you want to take a look at that report on the NTSB.gov, And go to the section that says the aviation accident reports. You can do a search and you can read some things that will just surprise you with the detail that is presented there. And this is going to, I guess, my final point. This is going to take some time. It's not going to be overnight. Perhaps there will be things that will come to light. That the NTSB will state, you know, we think these are primary factors and point out that when they made those initial announcements about their investigation, they said our partners in this is the FAA, Scaled Composites, and I guess they mentioned Virgin Galactic as well. So they have partners in the investigation. It's not the government trying to pin the blame and to point the finger at somebody, they're not trying to point the finger at the uh, Spaceship 2 crew. They're not trying to point the finger at the design of of the spacecraft. I think it's interesting that knee-jerk reaction, you know, I heard that that they were flying a a new engine, new fuel combination for the first time, and that was my first thought. Uh Uh-oh, what changed, what went wrong has to be the newest thing, and we're really not going to know for a while, and thanks for giving me the soapbox to carry on here for a minute.
0: Thanks, Mark. And again, I think that gives us a real good insight into how the NTSB is going to go ahead and conduct this investigation going forward. It was something that Christopher Hart emphasized last night. This is going to be a long investigation. We're not here for quick fixes. We are going to do a very thorough job. And he did emphasize that during the press conference last night. It just goes to show what an art form this really is and trying to piece together what occurred. And Mark, I'm sorry, just one more thing too. You had mentioned the fuel and all that. That was something that was being talked about over the weekend. The engine was another thing, that uh, smoking gun that was being talked about over the weekend. But right now, I'm not going to say we're going to eliminate those two things, but it's looking less and less likely given what we know now. Kat, you mentioned some things about the, the media reaction out there to all this. I know the UK has been pretty scathing in this whole thing. But there was an interesting uh, side today on American media. You had some data on that.
4: Yes. Richard Branson was on the Today Show. Matt Lauer asked a very interesting question of him, which I think kind of is indicative of where the media is right now in considering the Spaceship 2 accident. Uh, Quote, I'm thinking back to the early days of the NASA programs going into space. It seemed at that time, although they had a tragic loss of life as well, that it was about the advancement of science, that giant leap for mankind. And, rightly or wrongly, people don't see your program in the same light. They think it is more of an expensive thrill ride. So, is it worth the risk? Branson! responded with an emphatic yes. He said, people deserve the chance to go to space. We can put up satellites because that's going to help millions of people now who don't have cell phone coverage have coverage. And it can aid in point to point environmental travel in an environmentally friendly way. And then uh, Richard Branson said, I can name a million more reasons, but I'm not going to. But I think this question from Matt Lauer really kind of illustrates this point that you were talking about, Gene, with what's going on in especially the media coverage in the UK, where one headline from The Telegraph was Richard Branson needs to get out of the space business and stay with mobile phones. There's a lot of vitriol, a lot of feeling that this is a millionaire playboy putting his fingers in maybe where they don't belong, doing it in a kind of a cowboy, let's disregard the rules of safety. And... That sentiment has been echoed pretty much around the world. You hear it from our reporters here that are questioning, regardless of the cause of Spaceship Two's disintegration, they are alleging that Virgin Galactic and Scaled Composites by an extension has a safety culture that is not up to par when you're talking about something as risky and dangerous as going to space. And an interesting sort of reaction that I'm seeing in the media is that this is becoming a financial story. Fortune.com, Bloomberg are reporting on this and saying, is there a market for private space? Are we ready to go there or is this investment too risky?
0: Well, Kat, they're kind of doing the same thing, too, with Orbital Sciences as well. I overheard today on one of the local radio stations, does this open up the door for NASA, which I thought was kind of ridiculous since Orbital Sciences is working under contract for NASA. So I kind of wish people understood that NASA's not leaving the field. These are totally independent operations.
4: Absolutely. And there is a different response regarding Orbital than regarding Virgin Galactic because Orbital is seen as a company that, yes, is still a private space company, but within the media, they've actually, right before Spaceship 2 disintegrated, there were several articles lauding the actions of the range safety officer and saying, yes, we saw this was a problem, so everything went right. And almost kind of minimizing some more of the sensationalist type stories that came out, you know, immediately following the incident. But with Spaceship Two, it kind of reignited that sensational and really just reignited the conversation of, is this worth it? Should we be funding? And yes, there have been some comments from people saying, hey, leave this stuff to NASA. NASA's who should be doing this. But Again, I think we've talked about this before in previous programs. There is a lack of understanding by the general public, not only with how spaceflight is carried out today, but just in general knowledge of how scientific research or any sort of research is carried out. And that really makes it difficult for news reporting to be very accurate in a way that informs without overstating something or without over-minimizing uh, and that's more of a symptom of the media climate and the educational and policy climate that we have more so than maybe some of these smaller technical issues or the reporting issues that we're seeing.
0: And just as an aside, the article where Kat and I are talking about here, too, it was in the Telegraph UK. The uh, individual that made those comments was a uh, woman by the name of. Caroline Campbell-Knight, she's uh, apparently a propulsion expert out of the Netherlands-based International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety and a writer for Space Safety Magazine.
4: Absolutely. And also, several comments from Miles O'Brien, whom we are probably in the space community all very familiar with. One thing that he said in an article for CNN is I feel this is the real problem in the Virgin Galactic. He's been promising things that they frankly can't deliver. And when we talk about the media coverage of Virgin Galactic and specifically Richard Branson, there is a real concern within the community that Virgin Galactic is going too far, too fast. And again, that comes to that concern of, you know, to again, to quote Miles O'Brien, he said that uh, Virgin Galactic has consistently underestimated the risk involved. And whether or not that has any impacts on what happened in Friday's incident, because at this point, we don't know what caused it. But there certainly is concern and concern that stems from some some issues that Scaled Composites has had before. Uh, This isn't the first time there's been a loss of life associated with Spaceship Two. So there is some concern, is the best way to put it. Whether or not that is correctly placed at this moment, we don't know, because we don't know what causes. But when it comes to media perception and how this is being perceived by the general public, it's not helpful.
0: Hey, sorry, why don't you bring us home on this? Give us a final word.
1: It's hard to give a final word on a topic like this because it's still obviously a very developing story and an ongoing story. But we'll have to see because this is going to be a big test right here, a big test in the way that commercial companies handle disasters, a big test in the public's commitment to these type of programs, and a big test to if... Our nation, the United States and people as a whole are still ready for spaceflight to become normal. And if it's going to become normal, there are going to have to be accidents. And for it to become normal, we're going to have to get through these accidents. And then make it something awesome. So it's going to take a lot of time and these events always slow it down and they always make us question, can we do it? But keep in mind, Apollo 1, people were giving the exact same questions and then Apollo 11 happened and, and then traveling to the moon became too routine and too expensive. So hopefully it's the same outcome without the becoming too routine and too expensive part.
3: I would like to actually bridge this with a quote from astronaut Reed Wiseman. He had a comment from the International Space Station on he was asked about both of these mishaps in the past week. And he said, the great part about this industry is it will be better at the end for both of these mistakes or mishaps. There will be recovery. There will be healing. Then there will be success down the road. And I just thought that was really poignant coming from somebody who is actually in that environment out in space right now, risking his very life for the space program, for the space industry, supporting that. And he said that about both of these incidents, Orbital and Virgin Galactic.
1: Yeah, because that's the thing is that there was still that other event that happened earlier in the week in addition to the incident with Virgin Galactic. And let's move on to the first half of a bad week of spaceflight. And that was on this past Tuesday. And that was the loss of the Antares vehicle. That's the Orbital Sciences rocket, which was carrying the Cygnus resupply vehicle to the ISS. In case you Don't know what happened on this past Tuesday, which was the 28th of October. uh, The rocket had a malfunction and was destroyed by the range safety officer about 20 seconds after it lifted off from Wallops Island. In case you missed it, we did a full episode last week looking into the facts that were known right after launch, so... If you haven't heard that, be sure to check that out since there were a lot of rumors going around and a lot of information in that episode that we stuck to just the facts. However, there's still plenty of rumors going around now that the accident has passed. And thankfully, there have been a lot more press conferences and updates to update everybody on what's actually going on. So, Gene, what do we know now?
0: Well, the day after the accident, there was going to be a third quarter report from Orbital Sciences about their finances and what have you, and it turned into, well, what we know thus far, as far as the investigation is concerned, how we're going to handle it, and most of all, when Antares is going to fly again. And uh, David Thompson, who is Orbital Sciences' CEO, was the uh, gentleman that was uh, on the call with investors. Uh, I was able to go ahead and get a recording of that call, and we've got some snippets to play from that. First to bring everybody up to speed and what's been going on with PAD-0A, David Thompson described PAD-0A as it is now, or as it was the day after the event. So. I'm sorry if you could go ahead and play that cut for me and appreciate it.
6: As many of you know, we intended to launch the fifth Antares rocket uh, carrying our fourth Cygnus spacecraft to the uh, space station last night from our launch base at Wallops Island, uh, Virginia. Following a smooth countdown, uh, Antares lifted off at about 6:22 p.m. Eastern Time but experienced a catastrophic failure approximately 15 seconds uh, into the flight which uh, ultimately destroyed the rocket as well as the uh, Cygnus uh, spacecraft uh, attached to it. Fortunately, uh, no one was injured as a result of the accident and based on the preliminary inspections uh, that were conducted this morning at Wallops Island, it appears that the launch pad complex itself was spared uh, from uh, any major damage. In addition, the Antares Vehicle Assembly Building and related Cygnus spacecraft processing facilities at other locations within the uh, Wallops area were not affected by the failure in any way.
0: So uh, that was essentially David Thompson saying that uh, PED0A really came out of it like a champ. Uh, There wasn't as much damage as they all thought. And uh, later on in the the conference, it was revealed that insurance is basically going to be covering most of that. However, it's kind of likely, too, that according to a report from the Times-Dispatch today, This is a a regional newspaper in the eastern shore area that orbital is, looks like the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport and the Virginia Commercial Space Flight Authority will also be sharing some of that liability, which means the state is going to be sharing some of that liability and that's caused some the legislature in Virginia to go, hmm, okay, okay let's, let's find out how much is this going to cost us. So, we'll be watching to see who's really, really going to pay for the damages over at Pad 0 a The other thing, too, was Thompson described how the investigation is going to be carried out?
6: Uh, Our short-term actions have centered around the formation of an accident investigation board that, uh, together with NASA, the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport, and uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, will carry out uh, the failure review and recommend corrective actions. At this time, it's too soon to know exactly how long this process will take or uh, uh, whether uh, Antares and Cygnus missions that are scheduled for next year, including our next flight, which uh, had been set for early April, uh, will be affected. Uh, This investigation may or may not lead us to the conclusion that the failure was caused by a problem with the Antares first stage main propulsion system. As most of you know, the uh, AJ26 rocket engines uh, used in that system have presented us with some serious technical and supply challenges in the past. So notwithstanding the previous successful flights uh, of Antares before yesterday, Orbital has been reviewing alternatives since the middle of last year and recently selected a different main propulsion system uh, for uh, future use by Antares. It is possible that we may decide to accelerate this change if the AJ26 uh, turns out to be implicated in the failure, uh, but this has not yet been decided.
0: So he kind of ironed out how the whole investigation is going to go, how they think it's going going to go. He did emphasize, too, that just like the NTSB, this is going to take a long time to look at. He wasn't too sure as far as making the April deadline that uh, the Orb 4 mission already had. So we're going to basically watch that. But the big key was really, when is Antares going to fly next? That question question was asked kind of roundabout several times by several of the investment companies for obvious reasons, but it was also on the back of everybody's mind too. David Thompson did underscore the fact that they realize that NASA's a big customer for them. They want to make sure they get it right, but they also want to make sure that they don't miss the primary root cause by going down you know, several rabbit holes and missing the real root cause. They want to take their time, be methodical, and so on. But uh, he did give a, an estimate, too, as far as when he expected Antares to fly again. Uh, I also think, um, although
6: this uh, uh, is subject to uh, additional work, that it uh, will not likely take very long, I think, a period of Measured in days, not weeks, for um, the uh, investigation team to uh, define the, the uh, handful of most likely uh, causes of the accident. It may take a little longer than that to zero in on the final root cause. From our experience in the past, which is not altogether um, uh, transferable to this situation, uh, uh, I would. Uh, anticipate that uh, there will be some delay in the next scheduled Antares launch, which, which as I mentioned uh, earlier, current, was, was currently set for uh, uh, early April. Um, I think a reasonable best-case estimate would bound that uh, at uh, three months, but uh, it could certainly be considerably longer than that, depending on what Uh, We find in the review. Um, I would hope uh, it would be uh, not more than a year.
0: That last part was kind of ominous a little bit. He was hoping that it would take no more than a week to isolate, you know, several ideas as far as what the root causes might be in this event. He did mention, too, in one of the other clips about the AJ26 engine. That has been an issue for them. They were going to announce a replacement for the AJ26 engine. This, uh, that, in fact, this month to carry them through the possibility of going through uh, the next round of cargo supply missions. Uh, that contract, I believe, will be up for bid in 2016. And he didn't, and uh, Mr. Thompson did say that he was going to go ahead and make sure that Orbital Sciences was in that, and they were definitely going to put a proposal in together, so that was not going to change at all. But the last part of that was kind of ominous. It could be about three months. We couldn't fall, you know, a little bit shy on that, but it theoretically could be a year or two. So he's kind of hedging his bets there a little bit because based mm-hmm. on, as he indicated, in previous experience with all this. But again, it's sort of like where we are, at Virgin Galactic, and Mark, again, it's sort of what you've been pointing out as well with how the NTSB is going to approach the Virgin Galactic issue. They're going to be methodical, and orbital sciences is going to be methodical. And Kat, just to add something that you have made the observation with, and I guess the whole group did last week, um, Orbital Sciences on their website, if you go there and you click on, I believe it's on the, in the left-hand corner there, there's a little picture of uh, of, a, of one of the Cygnus spacecraft. If you click on that, that gives you all the updates on, on Orb 3. They are putting together really what we've been doing today. And uh, they've been putting out periodic press releases. So we're going to be watching that, too, and, and offering comment and, and so on. But, Kat, to, to add something that you had mentioned last week, they're being awfully transparent about this.
4: Yeah, I was just about to say that I am really excited to see that they have followed through on that commitment. Because that was something very bold to say just hours after your rocket explodes in a very public way to say that we will update you as we know something. We are committed to making sure the public knows what happens. And they have really followed through on that. And I have to say that they really deserve commendation for the way they've handled this in the press and the way they've handled the the investigation to date and the openness and the transparency of it. It's been really fantastic and wonderful to see when their big incident is really kind of set the stage for this conversation that continued after, unfortunately, losing something else within the private space sector. So their example is really the one to follow because they've done a phenomenal job.
0: Yeah, and that was one of the things that David Thompson sort of emphasized, too. It's how you climb out of it out of the abyss it's going to you know really really set the stage for the future and i believe too bill Gerstmeier said that the night of the accident that we're going to learn from this uh everybody learns along the line from every every mishap and and we we're all going to take something out of this and uh we're going to be all stronger for it a new rocket design could come forward out of this so we'll just see
4: What I think it's very important, too, when you look at Orbital's response is to see their response by necessity must be different because they're involved in a slightly different area of the private space sector than a company like Virgin Galactic is. So by necessity, their response must be different, but they've also done a great job at leading the way, and I have no doubt that they will become a better company and that their example will be the example to follow when the next big tragedy happens because as we've said as everyone has said spaceflight is risky something else is going to happen it's not a question of if it's a question of when and we just hope that the next thing is something that's more recoverable and doesn't involve loss of life
0: yeah, agree and and cat if you know the I really don't want to sound like orbital sciences fanboy but if you know the folks over there they're they really really had been you know an incredible group to work with and I have no doubt that they're going to come out of this stronger and will have probably a better spacecraft and a better booster as a result
1: without a doubt again it's just going to be a matter of them getting their stuff together again and getting everything repaired and making sure they find the root cause and getting it all fixed because that that's going to be the big thing. And until, as of right now, again, the biggest problem is still all of this is speculation. There is no hard enough evidence to say, okay, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what needs to be fixed. And as a result, we could say it will be flying again in a year or two. It's still... Pretty early on, there's still a lot of questions and there's still, as a result, a lot of public concern. Like we mentioned with the Virgin Galactic one, there's always that public concern. And the biggest thing is people are thinking, oh, this was a NASA rocket. It's all NASA's fault again. So I think a lot of the public perception is saying, look, this isn't a NASA rocket. NASA sponsored the program and selected them, but this wasn't NASA's rocket. This is a private company. They're doing their own thing, and actually, I think as a result of being a private company and them having less red tape to go through, they may actually get back faster.
0: Yeah, so one of the other things, too, I want to put to bed, too, is the aj 26 controversy. First off, a lot's been said about that and saying, oh, well, geez, these are 1960s vintage engines and all this other stuff. Well, they don't just exactly take the NK-33 and stick it into the Antares. I I'm recalling my time at Wallops Island about a year ago concerning when, when the Antares first launched. And one of the things that we did see at the Horizontal Integration Facility, or the HIF, were the HA-26 engines. Now, these things are born as the NK-33s, and yes, there are a finite amount. There is no doubt about that. But a company called Aerojet gets a hold of these things and basically makes them do things that the original designers never thought they could do. These are not your father's 1960s-era engines. They are completely Furbish New equipment's thrown on there. They're an old dog that gets taught new tricks. For instance, the NK-33 cannot gimbal or point or move around. The AJ-26 can. It can steer. So that's just one of the things that they're able to eke out of these things. The other thing, too, is they are far from... The NK33 engine that comes out of the Kuchenev Design Bureau that makes these things. The only concern that Orbital had with reference to these engines were the supply. And of course, now with the geopolitical situation going on, they may not have access to these engines. It's the same thing with the RD-180 for Atlas. So they decided that maybe to go another route would be a good way to do that, and they were going to announce that new engine anyway this month. So there's been a lot said about that in a lot of venues, and including, and we mentioned this last time, an old two-year comment that, Elon Musk himself made about the design of the Antares rocket and he was a little less than complimentary about it it's been played in the press and I'm not going to mention it but I just wanted to go ahead and get that story straight because I got a little tired of hearing that over the past few days
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, while we're still talking about speculation, I know, Mark, you had something to talk about
5: that. Yeah. I've got a comment. I was inspired listening to some of the discussion here about finding the root cause. And I remembered some detail on the uh, Spaceship Two, and I went looking as y'all were talking for information about the Antares rocket. Time has bit me. I haven't found what I was looking for. So (laughs) they said that on Spaceship Two, that they had six cameras on the aircraft spacecraft. They had six non-volatile RAM sources of data on Spaceship Two. They They had three cameras, I believe, on White Knight carrier aircraft. They had telemetry with over a thousand parameters of information. There was a range camera at Edwards Air Force Base that had visual contact with Spaceship Two. So they also had chase aircraft with video and radar. They had a phenomenal amount of sources of data they're going to, I think, enable them to pinpoint exactly what happened and what happened in a time sequence down to fractions of a second. And I think the same thing is, I'm sure, the case on uh, the Antares rocket, and that's what I was looking for. I wanted to find out more about the telemetry that's available on that rocket. But you know it's instrumented. You know that they have incredible data coming down to the ground as they go through the whole process of the countdown and the launch. So I have no doubts that there will be any uncertainty. I think they will find what the root cause was. They will find out that, <laughs> and, you know, my observation about accidents, it's when everything goes wrong at once. <laughs> and, you know, maybe there's one thing. Maybe it's a combination of things. And one of the things that I've, I've seen over the years with, you name it, whether it's aircraft, automobiles, bicycles, shoes. <laughs> there are progressive refinements of a design and progressive changes in, in the way that, that things are made and the way things are operated. And I, I believe this is going to be the case here where there will be findings that will very definitely point to what happened. And in that respect, This is very, very unfortunate, especially the loss of life and the effects to the business and to the people that are part of those businesses. But it ain't the end of the world. It's, things are going to go on. Things are going to improve. And this will be seen as a sad day, a dark day, but certainly not the end of anything.
0: Yeah, Mark, to just cut in for a sec, David Thompson during that same investor conference did indicate that there is a rich amount of data. They've got all sorts of camera angles. They've got all sorts of telemetry that came down from the spacecraft. They've got all sorts of telemetry built into the consoles. Uh, they're taking, you know, interviews from those on console. They're taking a look at notes that were made during during the launch attempt. And they have got more data than they can shake a stick at. So I have no doubt they're going to pinpoint the right cause on this. They did say, though, however, and this was sort of brought in during the conference since the AJ26 engines have been a little bit of a bone of contention, is that if it's found that those were the smoking guns, then they may have to go ahead and accelerate their engine program a little bit more to just make sure that that gets going. I will emphasize it's not Orbital Sciences doing the engine program. They are contracting out to somebody else. That announcement, by the way, who that is, has not been made. They did make a selection. And either I missed it or it has not been made yet. One of the things I will bring up, too, because they were all pointing out that, yeah, it's a Russian-made engine and all this other stuff. Well, the problem is right now the United States doesn't make an engine in that class of that size and power, period. So, in a way, the entire country really got caught with their pants down on this.
3: Call for an entrepreneur. <laughs> now that we have a growing private space industry, especially, it does seem like it might be time to uh, invest in making some new styles of rocket engines right here in the States.
0: Well, that's what Blue Origin has decided to do for uh, United Launch Alliance, and I believe Aerojet Rocketdyne is doing the same thing. They've got the AR-1 proposal. And I believe Jeff Bezos has got his own engine proposal going for uh, the possibility of plugging that into the Atlas. So we'll just see how it all goes. But again, I think we kind of waited too long. We let the geopolitical situation kind of get to us. And it really, really, we, we really honestly got caught with our pants down
4: was well, we got a little apathetic there, you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see more. You know, and as you said, you just said, Gene, uh, there are people looking to build rockets in the United States now. And I really would say that public perception, especially of being able to say politically, something is manufactured in the U.S., has a lot of plout now. And the U.S. government, through... A lot of NASA funding gives a lot of money for private space endeavors. So I would not be surprised that regardless of the causes of any of the incidents that happened last week, that you see a push for, well, if we're going to continue private space flight, then it should be all American. It should be an American made space flight because that is political cachet. And in this business, that's important.
1: I definitely agree with what you were saying, Kat. But one point that I brought up briefly, and I know is something that I just wanted to discuss a little bit in the end, in the last few minutes that we have, is that idea of what's NASA and what's private. Because I think the biggest thing right now is that the public is very confused. The public sees um, the Antares one as a NASA failure, even though it was private space, and they see... The Virgin Galactic one as a private thing. That's like, oh, that's you know Virgin Galactic. That's Richard Branson's thing. That's going to be the death of private space. Whereas this one is, oh, it's another NASA failure. And I think that's something that needs to be addressed. And I know Kat, you wanted to talk briefly about that.
4: Yeah, actually, I was going to say that I saw from the initial media coverage of the Antares failure to the spaceship up before the spaceship two uh, failure. That there was actually a shift in the way the conversation in the media was being held. The conversation was moving away from NASA rocket explodes and NASA has a failure. Antares rocket was detonated by range safety officer. We are explaining the decision why this was made. So what's happened with the Antares launch failure? being followed right on that heels by the spaceship to disintegration is that I think the public and especially the media is beginning to recognize the nuances of private space, that there are two different kinds of private space. There is private space tourism and private, <laughs> and private space for government and for governmental research aims. And I think from the media coverage I'm seeing that the media is beginning to parse this out and is beginning to use different language to speak about Spaceship Two opposed to Antares. However, as you pointed out, Sawyer, the public still doesn't understand the distinction. And I think it's very important that as space advocates or space communicators, science advocates or science communicators, that we seek to educate and inform the public about the differences, because there is space within the sector for all of that. We need private space endeavors that might be more focused on something like space tourism. Because, you know, as you said earlier, Cassie, getting people to space will make this world different. And we need private space companies that's focused on doing the grunt work of agencies like NASA or ESA or Roskamos. We need that area and the space for the agencies to be doing that work that they should be doing, that pushing the boundaries and pushing the envelope of our scientific knowledge. And so one thing that's really important, I think, that could come out of this horrible week for private spaceflight is that there's an opportunity to educate people where each of these companies belongs within the grand scheme of space exploration.
3: It hadn't occurred to me until you were saying that, Kat. But what's really interesting is, you know, I've heard for years from people how, Because NASA, you know, screws up so much, maybe we should get rid of NASA. That's one of the excuses people have for why maybe we should defund NASA. And it just occurred to me now that I don't know if it'd be possible to frame the story this way. But part of this story is, look, space
4: is really hard no matter who is doing it. Absolutely. That's a great point. And it's been said over and over from NASA, from Orbital, from scaled composites from Virgin Galactic, spaceflight is risky.
0: You were talking about Cat, how people get the whole things confused. They even get even confused further with the media. I saw again a commentary on a local radio station here that the Orbital Sciences accident could be an opening for NASA, and I was like, wait a minute, how? this is not an opening for NASA. This is, this is a NASA project. So even some sources in the media are getting things kind of kerfuffled.
4: I heard that as well. I heard a few people saying, let's get space back to NASA where it belongs, not understanding that leaving low Earth orbit is part of NASA's plan, leaving that to the private space companies.
0: Yeah, bingo. So, you know, you and I are both on the same page on that.
1: I think all of us in this panel today are. It's just a matter of getting that out to the rest of the public. And I think that's our job as space enthusiasts and, you know, especially members of the media. that That's our job is to get people at information so that way they can make informed decisions about their space program and what isn't their space program as well.
3: You <laughs> so. know, all of us do a lot of grassroots on the streets types of outreach and it's so important just even when you hear people talking about this stuff whether you're you know at a cafe or whatever you're doing to actually correct them because every time you do that with somebody on the street they can go and correct the people they know and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but it's amazing the difference just talking to a knowledgeable person can make for some people so just to everybody who's listening to this take the time if you hear people or if you find your friends who maybe aren't space geeks or your coworkers talking about these things, take the time to try and give them some truth about it because I think we all know that you can't fully trust the mainstream media at this point.
1: Exactly. I mean, one thing that I'll end with that I think was interesting is I'm in a news reporting class at Syracuse University and we do two newscasts and my day is Wednesday which was the day after the incident so obviously that made it into the newscast it was interesting to see the two people who wrote those stories the way that they wrote it one person differentiated that it wasn't a NASA rocket it was a commercial rocket but it was part of a NASA program and I was like wow and the other one started off right away the NASA rocket blew up and I'm like oh my gosh so I actually went over to the- <laughs> said, it's just a matter of correcting them and I think that's our job here and I think that's your job as the listener as well Well, if you're as into this as we are, is if you hear people talking about this, just go up and say, hey, did you actually know that that's not exactly true? It was A, B, and C, you know, without being a jerk about it, but... Just making that one simple little change may spark a conversation of, oh, really, you know, explain it. And then as they learn more, not only are they more informed when it comes to the actual corrections of what's going on, but then they can make more informed decisions when it comes to voting and, you know, writing to their people of, hey, this is where we need to go as NASA. This is where we need to go for private. And I think that's all up to the listeners.
3: This this won't be out in time before people are voting, but this is the night before election night. And so it, it's important to remember these things when we go to vote, when we go to talk to candidates, when we go to ask them questions. We, we have a lot of responsibility as citizens with the right to vote and um, to care about. These issues that maybe don't get talked about as much. In my state, New Jersey, we have a seat on the Senate Appropriations Committee for space. And so while New Jersey doesn't have a huge part in the space industry at large, we do actually have a senator who controls NASA's budget. So to people out there, Look into who your representatives are and if they might actually have more to do with space than you think they do. And consider that when you vote.
0: Just to correct you, Cassie, Lockheed Martin is in Moorestown here. And, yes. and Orbcom is in Roselle Park so there is there is uh, there's a,
3: some space industry yeah. however it's one of the smallest industries in New Jersey so I'm standing by my point that's not a huge industry for this state but we do have an, a larger influence than most when it comes to Washington DC when it comes to NASA's budget when it comes to programs being approved we have a larger than usual influence currently it is Cory Booker it will probably be Cory Booker as of tomorrow night we'll know for sure tomorrow night but it's important to know that, that it's not just Florida and Texas that have representatives who have you know skin in the game
0: well again to just Sawyer what you were saying to just kind of correct people That's is why I have my iPad at the ready and I also have some tchotchkes from the events I've gone to and I kind of hand them out and just say you know just keep that in mind so they get a, either a, you know, a little bookmark or something like that from, from an event I've been at so I try to spread the love a little bit <laughs>
3: And if anybody sees me anytime soon, I have a lot of dream chaser stuff to give out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Speaking that's of a private whole other industry, story. exactly. Yeah. Just trying to make things a little happy. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, happy if it's, you're not uh, Sierra Nevada. But again, well, that's you know, a whole other story.
3: <laughs> it it is, but you know, it says something about how robust this industry is. The, the fact that we're. <laughs> you know, I'm the eternal optimist here, I think. And the fact that we actually had two disasters by private space companies in one week says a lot about how much more we're doing private space. It's, you know, it's a strange way to look at it, but it's just it's so easy to get mired in the things that go wrong. And you have to you have to find out what went wrong and how we're going to fix it for the future. But you also have to remember that not that long ago, this couldn't have happened because we didn't have two private space industries flying the same week or space space companies, I should say.
0: Hey, guys, before we bag out, any any um, any final thoughts?
1: I don't think we need any final thoughts. I think <laughs> I think Cassie that sums it up perfectly. It is amazing that we are in an age where we can have two commercial companies, two completely different commercial co- space companies launch test flights or vehicles whether they were successful or not. It's still an amazing feat and as sad as these all are and as tragic as it is and as much as it's, you know, people will claim it as a setback for private space. On a timeline, yes. But overall, I don't think this is a setback. I think this is a great learning tool. And guarantee you, as a result of this, both of them will be safer when they fly again. Keywords there, when they fly again, because they both will, I can guarantee you. And with that, that brings this episode to its conclusion. Thank you again for joining us, Gene, Mark, Cassie, Kat, and you, the listeners, as well. We hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.